Well, what a great day to celebrate, and thank you so much for joining us wherever you are today. My name is Dave. I'm our lead pastor here, and it's just a delight to be able to celebrate today with you. Now, some of you are probably familiar with the classic tale told by C.S. Lewis called The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Uh, and and you, may re- you might remember that there's this great lion named Aslan. And Aslan is the creator of this world of Narnia, um, and this creator, Aslan, this great lion, comes and meets these children who have found their way through a wardrobe into this uh, fantasy world that Lewis has created. Now, one of these children, Edmund, has been taken captive by the white witch. He's been enticed by the, the, the promise of Turkish delight, and he really gives into his self-centered nature. And so what, what, ha- what happens is the rest of the, the story is unfolding as this traitor who's now captive and bound, like how will he be set free? And we find out that Aslan, the lion, the great lion, makes a deal with the white witch. He says to her that he will lay down his life. He will let her kill him in order to set Edmund free. And he goes through with the plan. It looks as if he's been defeated forever. Uh, Let me just read you a section where Lucy and Susan, these are Edmund's sisters, where they're now keeping watch, brokenhearted over the death of their beloved lion friend Aslan. As soon as the wood was silent again, Susan and Lucy crept out into the open hilltop. The moon was getting low and thin clouds were passing across her, but still they could see the shape of the great lion lying dead. And its bonds. And down they both knelt in the wet grass and kissed his cold face and stroked his beautiful fur, what was left of it. And they cried till they could cry no more. And then they looked at each other and held each other's hands for mere loneliness and cried again. And then again were silent. They walked to and fro more times than they could count between Aslan and the eastern ridge, trying to keep warm, and oh, how tired their legs felt. Then at last, as they stood for a moment, looking toward the sea and Care Paravel, which they could now just make out, the red turned to gold along the line where the sea and the sky met, and very slowly up came the edge of the sun. At that moment, they heard from behind them a loud noise, a great cracking, deafening noise, as if a giant had broken a giant's plate. What's that? said Lucy, clutching Susan's arm. I, I feel afraid to turn around, said Susan. Something awful is happening. They're doing something worse to him, said Lucy. Come on. And she turned, pulling Susan round with her. The rising of the sun had made everything look so different. All the colors and shadows were changed. That for a moment they didn't see the important thing. Then they did. The stone table was broken in two pieces by a great crack that ran down it from end to end. And there was no Aslan. Oh, 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 cried the two girls rushing back to the table. Oh, it's too bad, sobbed Lucy. They might have left the body alone. Who's done it? cried Susan. What does it mean? Is it more magic? Yes, said a great voice behind their backs. It is more magic. They looked round. 
there shining in the sunrise, larger than they had seen him before, shaking his mane, for it had apparently grown again, stood Aslan himself. Oh, Aslan, cried both children, starting up to him almost as much frightened as they were glad. Aren't you dead then, dear Aslan, said Lucy. Not now, said Aslan. You're not, not a, asked Susan in a shaky voice. She couldn't bring herself to say the word ghost. Aslan stooped his golden head and licked her forehead. The warmth of his breath and a rich sort of smell that seemed to hang about his hair came all over her. Do I look it, he said. That was a rhetorical question, of course. As her head is now wet with the great lion lick. And for those women who first touched Jesus, for Thomas who put his hands and fingers right into Jesus' scars, and with that exclaimed, my Lord and my God, there was no question. Jesus was very much alive and this day, 2,000 years ago, we celebrate that up from the grave, he arose. Jesus, the world's true king, very much alive. And so today, we join our, our hearts and our lives with billions around the, around the globe and throughout history to raise our hallelujah that God's love is stronger than even death. Today, we celebrate that the revolution of love changes how we view our past, transforms our experience in the present, and launches us with new hope into the future. We're going to talk about a revolution of love today, and I realize that word revolution, it doesn't always have a positive connotation, does it? It doesn't always leave us with kind of a warm, fuzzy vibe. And the word conjures images of, you know, fists raised or voices raised often fierce, maybe full of righteous anger at injustice, or perhaps even a desire to gain power for me and my group. A revolt, after all, means a fight. And you know, for perhaps those of us who go through life asking the question, like, why can't everyone just get along? The idea of a revolution, like, for those who are already comfortable, man, it, it sounds like something we want to move away from, not toward. But on the flip side, maybe looking at the positive angle, on the other side of injustice, if you've ever been there, or where your heart has been crushed with anguish at the horrors of how people can be treated with evil, be treated as much less than human, or if you've ever been a person who's legitimately experienced the pain of, say, racism or, or sexism, if you can relate to Rosa Parks, you know the one who said that, no, I'm not going to sit at the back of the bus, thank you very much, who no longer would accept the status quo of the racist segregation in the South in the 1960s, where those with black colored skin were separated and segregated and seen as less than human by others. So for those who relate to the roses of the world, or your heart breaks at, at oppression and injustice too common in our world, how children are sold into slavery, or where there's laws that fail to protect the most vulnerable in our society, even those children who are unborn. Man, that idea of revolution, if by it we mean that the systems that push people down 
and the evil that stands behind it, if those things are going to be addressed and redressed and undone, well, for you, the idea of revolution is a breath of fresh air. For revolution ultimately means a different way of doing things. It means a change, a new sort of, wor- of world. Here's how Miriam Webster's puts it. Revolution, a sudden, radical, or complete change. Another way of saying it is this. They're going to say a change in the way of thinking about or visualizing something. A change of paradigm. And today, Resurrection Sunday, all around the world, in hundreds of languages and dialects, people are raising their voices to say Christ is risen risen indeed. This is the sound of revolution. Because this day does spell the sudden, radical, and complete change of life and all of life. But it's much more than simply a voice raised in protest. More than that, it's a voice raised in praise. It's a cry of delight, of claiming and resting in the victory that Jesus has won for us over death and sin and evil itself. This is the revolution of love. Jesus himself says it like this. He says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. That's what I want to suggest is at the heart of God's revolution of love. It really is a revolution, make no mistake. But the point, the goal, and the character of this revolution is utterly different than every other kind of revolution possible. For peacemakers, those are ones who who work for bringing wholeness and putting the world back to rights, bringing it back to harmony. To see this, we need to begin with a historical point. We need to know that revolution was very much in the air at the time when Jesus came. The biblical idea you see of Messiah is of a God-appointed ruler who would come and establish and set up God's beautiful kingdom reign on earth. And that was at the center of the hopes of God's people, the Israelites. The expectation of revolution was thick and palpable. In fact, the the word Messiah means saving king. But here's the thing. We know of at least a dozen failed revolution attempts, like where various groups uh, from among the Israelites would lead um, as a would-be Messiah. And we know that uh, within a hundred years, either side of Jesus' life, there was a dozen of these movements. All of these came with the sword drawn and a very specific enemy. It was the Romans who were occupying and oppressing the Israelites. These revolts, well, they end in, in, a, in, in bloodshed, in a mess. But no one supposed that these dead would-be messiahs were actually God's promised one. No, their death at the hands of the Romans was a clear indication that they were not appointed by God. So what would they do? Well, they would grab onto a brother or a cousin from that person's family. Maybe it was them who would really lead us to victory. And they would appoint that person. Maybe they would be the Messiah. But here's what's fascinating from a historian's point of view. In the case of Jesus, his early Jewish followers continue to call Jesus Messiah, the world's true king, even after his execution. 
like they don't turn to James. That's Jesus' half-brother. They don't dare appoint him as Messiah, even though he had, been come, he had co- uh, come to be seen as one of the primary leaders of the early Christian movement. Why not? Why do these early Christians continue to insist that Jesus is really and truly God's chosen Messiah, the true king, even though he had died at the hands of the Romans? Well, Oxford historian and biblical scholar N.T. Wright, he answers this question. Like, why didn't the Jesus movement fade into oblivion and obscurity after his execution, just like all the other would-be messiahs? He writes this. To this question, of course, the early Christians reply with one voice, we believe that Jesus was and is, notice the present tense there, the Messiah, because he was raised bodily from the dead. And then Wright contends, nothing else would do. And he's absolutely right. There is no other good historical reason for the fact that Christianity continues to name Jesus as God's loving leader, as the appointed Messiah. His movement would have died out just like all the other revolutions unless, unless he really had been raised from the dead and appeared to those followers of him who touched him, who talked with him, who experienced him for themselves If it hadn't been the women who had gone to the tomb, as Matthew records, and and actually touched him, fell at his feet, like Susan and Lucy meet Aslan in Lewis's creative retelling. If it hadn't been that the disciples embraced and were embraced by the risen Jesus himself. If it hadn't been for what we already sang this morning, then came the morning that sealed the promise. Your buried body began to breathe. Out of the silence, the roaring lion declared, the grave has no claim on me. And the girls, standing there in the presence of the risen Aslan, we see them press the real question, but what does it all mean? It means, says Aslan, that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backwards. This, my friends, is at the heart of the Christian gospel, the good news. In Jesus' willing act of laying down his life for us, for we were traitors to God in a thousand different ways, he was killed in a traitor's stead. The table would crack and death itself would start working backwards. Indeed, the roaring lion has declared, death has no claim on me. And when we know that, when we know that the promise, uh, know the promise that death has no claim on me, not ultimately, that transforms everything. That transforms my future and how I view it. Like the fear of death and especially that feel of, uh, fear of parting with my beloved forever, with those I love, that begins to lose grip on our hearts when we know this and embrace it. And that changes the present too, for it means that we can move forward in the world 
without fear that we're somehow missing out on something. See, it enables us to actually step out and join in the Jesus movement in trust to work for peace, to work for justice, to share this message of hope and love, even at great expense to yourself, because ultimately this life isn't the end for us. And if this is true, and I really believe it is, then all of the promises of Jesus are true. Our past, our present, our future, the way we view ourselves, our goals, our purposes, the meaning of our lives is now radically transformed forever. But to call this a revolution, man, it means we need to ask, what are the qualities? What, like, what's at the heart of this revolution? Well, we know from the, the story that the gospel writers tell us that even those who follow Jesus closely, they don't fully grasp it until after Jesus' resurrection. Peter, in particular, comes to mind. Sometimes he's called impetuous Peter, who blurts and who fumbles, who makes big promises and fails in big ways too. When Jesus is arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, like the night that he's arrested to be brought to the cross, Peter pulls out a sword. And I'm, I'm not sure if his aim was just bad, but as I was thinking about it, like you don't swing a sword near someone's head without the plan of doing significant damage, of causing death. He is ready to go to battle. He is in a revolution after all, right? We read this, Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. I love all the detail, hey? Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Now, the cup that Jesus is referring to, that, that's a way of speaking about the way he's going to suffer by bearing God's just judgment on evil and sin in himself. And that includes, by the way, all the ways that I've added to the evil of the world too. The journey of Jesus has been moving toward the cross this whole time. Indeed, he is a willing victim who has committed no treachery. For this revolution would not be fought on the basis of merely human action to deal with merely human issues, especially not done in violence. When we think revolution, we're particularly looking for solutions on the human plane. Peter believed that he was the solution, and the problem, well, is those who've come to arrest Jesus. But Jesus' answer tells us how wrong he was, and perhaps how wrong we are as well if we follow the path of Peter. For consider, the problem with revolution on a merely human level is that it paints a story. It's got protagonists, and, and it seems to be the protagonist is always the one telling the story, isn't it? And it's got antagonists, the bad guys. Like, they're the problem with the world. It's they that are the bad guys. And, and it's often, well, it's pointing where? Across the political aisle? Or across this border or that one? Or toward this issue with the world? And there are, to be sure, legitimate ongoing issues that need to be addressed. But we also need to stand back and ask some bigger questions and I know this may sound somewhat radical, but what if the issues that we're pointing to, what if they are not ultimately ones that can be sorted through with just enough time and goodwill? Like, what if all of our human endeavors, good as they might be, will never be enough 
to generate the sort of world that we long for. See, the cup that Jesus comes to drink, the revolution he comes to lead, it goes so much farther and so much deeper than the mere symptom level. The way Jesus answers Peter says that the world's problem, the the deep problem, is one that he has to deal with. And it's this. It's that we, each of us, all of us, are separated from God. We're alienated from our Father, from His love, like Edmund, because of our self at the center posture and all that it means for our lives. And that's exactly what Jesus comes to free us from. He comes to welcome us home. Friends, folks watching, maybe you need to come home today. The Lord of the whole world is inviting you to come back to Him. See, the revolution of love is indeed rooted in God's incredible love toward us. That solves the deepest issues within us, and then it enables us to get on with the revolution, but not from a self-centered perspective. Let's go back to Peter for a moment. His story begins when this fisherman from Galilee was called by Jesus as he was plying his trade on the lake. Coming in from a night of fishing with nothing to show for it, and I can relate to that, by the way, (laughs) Jesus, the carpenter, he calls out to these professional lifelong fishermen and says, hey, throw your nets on the other side of the boat, which just sounded daft. I mean, what a complete waste of time, and they knew it, but they do it still. And Peter and his buddies began to haul in the haul of a lifetime. The nets are breaking. Two boats are beginning to sink at the weight of all these fish. But what's really fishy is the question that this presses back onto Peter. Like, who is this guy? We read in Luke's gospel that Peter responds to Jesus in light of this catch like this. Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. He wasn't wrong, of course. Peter knows he's in the presence of something, someone sacred, and he feels this growing gap between him and Jesus. The divide widens, and he recoils. Perhaps you're listening to this, and you can relate to Peter. I do. (laughs) And Jesus' answer, what does he say to Peter? This is where it all comes down for us. He says this, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. Instead of moving away from Peter and people like him, people like me, if I'm honest, Jesus moves toward him and us. You see, people like Peter, those of us who know our need, we're not putting on any airs about our own issues. Jesus not only moves toward them, but that's whom he calls to walk with him into this revolution of love. See, Peter's recognition of his own sinfulness was actually his resume for service. Those God works with and through whom God works are those who know we stand in need of his forgiveness. And that's true for us too. So Jesus enlists this fisherman first by transforming how he sees Jesus, not as someone to be afraid of, but to follow. 
one that he could truly trust. And second, he shifts Peter's whole purpose in life. Peter is joining the revolution of love that will and truly change the world. And Jesus does the same for us. The revolution of love calls ordinary us's to simply respond as Peter does here. Yes, we're needy in God's presence, and yes, we need to see that we are called by the one who truly loves us. And so perhaps we just need to pause over this for a moment. Maybe you, like Peter, need to have your vision of Jesus shifted too. Perhaps the idea of being near him leads you to fear. Fear that like things in the dark corners and recesses of your heart will be exposed. You'd rather not have anyone come into those places. Or maybe fear of what you would be giving up if you say yes to him. But I hope that you can hear in the words of the risen Jesus for you today, do not be afraid. Yes, he will call you into things that are uncomfortable, that are much bigger than you could have ever dared to dream on your own. And yes, he'll deal with those dark recesses too, but not in the way you might think. Here's what Jesus says of himself. He says, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, with all of it, whatever those wearinesses and burdens are, come to me, he says, and I will give you rest. For I am humble and gentle, and you will find rest for your souls. That is what Jesus is promising when you open yourself up to him. So, do not be afraid. As we step into this, into the revolution of love and the one who loves us, there is a great comfort for our own hearts in that. Man, I can get on board with that. How about you? You see, the revolution of love changes how we view Jesus and how we view our past because it's the revolution of love. You know, when I was studying at Regent College, I got to do a course on the book of uh, 1 Corinthians. This is where Gordon Fee, uh, who's a great biblical scholar, he he was teaching there and he actually wrote his commentary on 1 Corinthians while he was teaching there. And I worked through this book of 1 Corinthians. I read his commentary along with it. I was translating from the original Greek for for that semester. And um, one of the students that he had at that time, he relays the story of how, well, how Fee worked with what's called the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13. The text, it says this, love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, It does not dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Prof. Wright, he describes how when he he came to writing his notes on this text in, in this book, And he sat with it for a long time. What could he possibly say that would add anything to this, the most sublime piece of love poetry ever penned? Why sully it with the slag of grammatical studies, the debris of speculative footnotes, and the white noise of scholarly quibbles? That's what Mark Buchanan writes. Then God spoke to him. Gordon? 
do you understand this is the way I love you? Yes, Lord. Gordon, what if it were not so? And Gordon Fee, a big man, loud and brash, cried like a baby for an hour. What if it were not so? Buchanan goes on to ask it like this. What if God only loved as I did, proportionately, moderately, prudently, frugally, as it suited him, when it was convenient? But that is not God. And that, my friends, is the question that keeps holding me, even in the darkest moments, that that is the way God loves me and loves you. And what if it wasn't so? What if he didn't love us like that? At this point in my life, I can't imagine what that would be like. And I don't want you or anyone to ever have to imagine what if it wasn't so. For God is patient and God is kind. His love always protects, trusts, hopes, perseveres. His love never fails. And this unfailing love of God, that stands at the heart of this revolution. It's what changes our past and makes a way forward so that we can join in. For look at how it works out in Peter's life. After the incident with the sword and after um, Jesus, he, Peter follows Jesus to the place where he's going to have this trial. And yet, the weariness of the long week, working without sleep for too long, mind and body, he begins to break down under the pressure. See, the same day that Peter draws a sword to fight for Jesus, he also swears blind that he's never even met him. And right after the final denial, three times he denies that he even knows Jesus, a rooster crows, just as Jesus said it would, by the way. And then we read this haunting detail. Then the Lord turned and looked at Peter. One writer sums it up like this. You can just read the hurt and ache in these words. The eye contact, the look of anguish on Jesus' face, the despair rowling now through Peter's heart. This once proud, self-assured young man was full of un fully and unreservedly broken. Luke later records that he went out and wept bitterly. And at this point, Peter drops out of the scene of the story. He's out of the picture. He's filled with regret, no doubt. The next thing he knows of his friend is that he's dead. Imagine if that was the last connection you had with someone you loved, flat-out denial of him. The writer continues, Peter was staring into the abyss of uncertainty. The king he assumed would set up the kingdom of God and overthrow the Romans was decomposing in a borrowed tomb. Unless, of course, he wasn't. Peter's Sunday morning misery was punctuated by a sudden visit from a breathless group of women. They could barely get the words out. What they see, said seemed crazy. No, actually it was crazy. The body of Jesus gone? This is impossible. The tomb was guarded with tight Roman security. The heavy stone was rolled into the entrance. Oh, and there's this little detail that, well, the dead don't just rise from the dead. But the women were serious. And they carried a word especially for Peter. 
Mark records a scene at the tomb where a man dressed in white robe urges Mary, tell the disciples and Peter. And Peter. These two words had Peter rubbing the sleep out of his eyes and sprinting toward the tomb. When Peter arrived, he saw what the women had just seen, an empty hole, a rolled away stone, and most telling, Jesus folded grave cloths. <laughs> we see in the story that Jesus appears a number of times to his disciples after his resurrection. They touch his body. He eats with them. He speaks with them. He is really and truly bodily there and present. And in one of these meetings, we find that the disciples, perhaps unsure of quite what to do next, well, they take out a boat on the lake and they go fishing. And after a night on the water without catching anything at all, which should probably start sounding familiar to us at this point, these men hear a word from the shore. Catch anything yet? No, they reply. Throw your nets on the other side, says the visitor. And they do. And there are so many fish that they can't even haul them into the boat. Also starting to sound familiar. And Peter, in his joy, jumps out of the boat because he knows who's calling him. It's Jesus, his master. And when he gets to shore, he finds Jesus is there making him breakfast. And after they eat, Jesus takes time to address Peter very personally. For the three times that Peter had denied even knowing Jesus, Jesus offers him three opportunities to say again, I love you. That's what God is like. When we fail, he's faithful. When we are weary, his strength upholds us. Jesus is restoring Peter, reminding him that his call on his life, even after his failure, is still there. Anyone else need to hear that again today? Forgiving Peter's past, Jesus launches him into the future that he has planned, into Peter's destiny that God has for him, the wild, unpredictable life that's mission with God. And that's the same thing that you and I and every other Jesus follower is called into as well. You know what? I can relate to Peter more than sometimes I'd like to admit. Maybe you do too. And in fact, maybe today, my hope is that you will relate to him more than you did and more deeply to see how your past as well and your present and your future can be transformed like his was. For the revolution of love calls to us. It's Jesus' own voice saying, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid, Dave. Do not be afraid, Rocky or Bruce or, uh, or Sarah. D don't be afraid. In Jesus, we find forgiveness and kindness. That means our past no longer defines our present or our future. Maybe you're hearing this, and like I said before, you just need to come home. Come to Jesus and his forever promise. He is calling you today to find life and healing that lasts forevermore. Or like Peter, perhaps we're prone to draw swords to try to take things into our own hands. That will only lead down a path we don't want to go. It doesn't reflect his love and his ways. In those moments, we'll need to hear Jesus say again, like he said to Peter, put that sword away. 
those tactics are not those of the kingdom. Follow my lead. It's a way of self-giving love at your own expense. And like Peter, we may forget who we are. We might end up fishing, you know, just doing the thing, plodding along like our past life, forgetting our purpose, that we were actually made to love God and love others, even as ourselves, to be a part of His mission in the world. But He's the one who loves to call us back, to restore us, and then send us out in service to Him and others. For God, the God of love, designed this world to be a place of peace and justice, where those things are the norm, where everyone is treated with dignity and respect, where every life is valued and nurtured. And He calls us to be agents of that kingdom, speaking words of hope, announcing that King Jesus is really the world's true King, and living lives that bring this hope to others. When we know love like this, it changes us, and that changes everything. Let it change you forever. Let's take up our part. Would you pray with me? God, we are so thankful that through your mighty power, you raised your son Jesus from the dead, and that by doing that, you affirmed everything that he taught, his words about eternal life, and how through trust in him, we can take that into ourselves forever. It gives us hope. It abolishes our fear of death because we know that we're yours forever. So Lord, work in our hearts. Remind us again this day as we celebrate that Jesus is alive, that his life means life for us in all of its dimensions. For those of us, Lord, who maybe got bogged down, lost our purpose, lost our way, we thank you that today you're calling us. Do not be afraid and come to me, and I will make you fishers of men. Wherever we're at on our stage of the journey, God, we, we long to hear your voice call us again today. And we trust through the power of your Holy Spirit that your grace will be at work in us for your glory and our joy. Amen.